This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, a privilege for me to be able to speak to you today. Um, Pastor Matt called me yesterday, sharing with me that uh, there's COVID in the family, and so he's quarantined. Of course, Pastor Glenn is on sabbatical. Pastor Bill has COVID. So uh, the comment this morning before the first sermon was, uh, last man standing is preaching today. Also got the comment, oh, it's throwback day at the church, Pastor Larry in the pulpit. (laughs) And so uh, it's good to be back for throwback day and to share a couple of words with you uh, about uh, our testimony for the Lord. Um, And it would help to start on page one of the sermon, wouldn't it? Uh, as I say, I, I'm glad to be here today. Uh, you know, I, I praise God for uh, the pastors of our church and their service and uh, uh, just keep them in prayer, their families during this time, because um, I know Pastor Matt wanted to be here this morning and he was thinking of different ways of possibly doing that. And I said, COVID is in your home, it's probably a good idea to be quarantined. And he said, yeah, I guess you're right. So uh, praise God that we can be here today. A couple of questions for you today. What was your life like before you became a follower of Jesus? What was your life like before you became a follower of Jesus? What were the circumstances that led you to accepting Jesus? What happened that caused you to put your faith in Him? And how has your life changed since you became a follower of Jesus? The answers to these three questions are your testimony, the testimony that you have about how Jesus has changed your life. And this morning, I wish to speak to you about the testimony of uh, the great New Testament character, the, the Apostle Paul. And if we, of course, we know in his earlier years, Paul is known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus um, is certainly uh, not a friend of Christianity, is he? He was a persecutor of Christians in his life. He believed that the resurrection of Jesus was a hoax. He believed that Christians were heretics falling away from the Jewish faith. He thought that it was his Jewish duty to arrest and even execute unrepentant followers of Jesus. And the story of his conversion to faith in Christ is really a story of of high drama the most dreaded persecutor of Christians in his time becomes the most outspoken advocate of the faith, taking the good news of Jesus throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, And Saul's conversion experience is, is related four times in the scriptures. 
And in essence, we have four accounts of his testimony. And uh, with each account, shedding a little bit more light on what actually happened on his road to Damascus experience and the subsequent meeting he had with Ananias in Damascus. So from our four accounts today, we're going to learn about what I think is a very significant element that I believe needs to be a part of every testimony, every Christian's testimony. Uh, Something that is often left out of Christians' testimonies, but I think something that is important to be included. And so as we go along in our study today, we will discover what that element is. In the meantime, I'd like for you to turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And this is the um, first account. This is the first account in the scriptures of Paul's uh, uh, conversion experience. So follow along as I read Acts 9, verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Then Saul got up from the ground Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and didn't eat or drink. And Saul's vision is then immediately followed by the account of a vision given to the man named Ananias. Listen as we read in verse 10 and following. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he said. Get up, go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. And let me just pause a moment. I'm always amazed at the detail we find in Ananias's vision. Uh, God gives Ananias the name of a homeowner, Judas, his home address, his street address. He gives him the name of a house guest that is in Judas' home. He says his name is Saul. He tells Ananias to speak to this house guest. He tells Ananias what Paul, uh, Saul will be doing when he gets there. He'll be praying. 
And on top of all of that, he reveals to Ananias what Saul has seen in an earlier vision that Saul would be healed by a man named Ananias. Pretty specific, isn't it? How does God, how does all of that happen? The only explanation, there's no uh, uh, just coincidence. The only explanation is God was in it. Amen? Gee, that was weak. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, So we read on, Ananias is hesitant. He is hesitant to go and see Saul because he knows his reputation. So we read in verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, to kings and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. The persecutor who caused suffering for so many himself would suffer to share the gospel. And we'll find he was most willing to do so. So in verse 17, Ananias left, he entered the house, he placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, amazing words that he could say this to the persecutor of Christians. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Let's pray as we consider this account of his conversion. And what we will also find is the account of his calling to ministry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to gather together in this place. We thank you, Father, that we can worship you in this land freely, free from from governmental interference. We thank you, Father, that we can read the words of Scripture and see how you revealed yourself to men years ago. And Father, we pray that you will speak to us through your revelation that, Father, we might hear your word today and go from this place with some practical teaching that will help us to live day by day to give honor and glory to your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on the road to Damascus, Saul believed he was on God's mission to arrest heretic Christians in Damascus who believed that Jesus was the risen from the dead, Lord and Savior of the world. And then this very same risen from the dead Jesus intervenes with a voice from heaven, a blinding light, and instructions for Saul to go into the city to wait further instructions. Saul's life is turned upside down. He meets the, I thought you were dead, Jesus. And this Jesus, who he thought was a fraud, who he thought was a deceiver, that he certainly did not believe he was the Savior and Lord, Savior of the world or Lord, this Jesus speaks to him from, of all places, heaven. <laughs> Think about that. 
How does the deceiver speak from heaven? Ah, perhaps he's not the deceiver. Here he is, his world is turned upside down. What he previous believed, he now knows is untrue. Blinded, he's led into the city to wait further instructions. Um, this is an amazing reversal that he is experiencing. Uh, now, this persecutor of Christians is now to be the preeminent, divinely appointed witness for the Gentile world. Now, at some point, we know that Saul of Tarsus is referred to as Paul the Apostle, and there's no account in the Scriptures that tells us that God changed his name or anything. I firmly believe that Saul, when born, was given two names, a Hebrew name and a Latin name that was not in common in those days, especially for folks, Jews, who were born in Gentile territories. And of course, we know he was born outside of Israel in Tarsus. So I suspect that what happened was that Paul deliberately chose to use his Latin name once he was saved as a symbolic uh, change, a name change, to make a dividing line between his old uh, uh, days as a persecutor of Christians, as a Jew, leaving his Jewish name behind and taking on his Latin name as a new Christian, a new life, as an apostle to the Gentiles. So from out this sermon, sometimes I'll call this man Saul, other times Paul, uh, you know who I'm talking about. Amen? <laughs> okay. And I want you to note that as we uh, look at the account of Saul's conversion here in Acts chapter 9, I want you to notice particularly verse 15, chapter 9, 15. Here is that point in the time of the story in which the Lord is speaking to Ananias. Ananias is hesitant to go to Paul because he's heard that he's a persecutor. But God says to him, go, Ananias, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. And what I want you to notice from verse 15 is this. We have two interweaving accounts. One is the account of the conversion of, G, of, of, of Saul, his uh, salvation experience on the road to Damascus. The other is the account of his uh, calling to ministry to be a witness for Jesus and to be the spokesman to the Gentiles. And notice that in our account, these two uh, themes are interwoven. In fact, they cannot be separated. Paul's, Saul's conversion experience includes his calling to ministry. They are inseparable. And what we are going to see is in all four accounts of, uh, of Saul's conversion, that is found to be true, that in each case, the two are combined, the conversion experience with his calling experience. We've seen that in the first account in Luke, Luke ch uh, Acts chapter 9. The second account of his calling is also in the book of Acts. In fact, three of the four accounts of Saul's conversion are in one book, the book of Acts. Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, probably thinks it's an important thing to tell this story three different times in his book. Uh, the, the second account then we find over in Acts chapter 22. 
And in chapter 22, uh, Paul is in the temple in Jerusalem. He's minding his own business, worshiping. Uh, there are some Jewish folks in the temple who see him there. They've heard rumors about this man who's been taking the gospel to the Gentiles. They've heard rumors about him uh, not uh, observing Old Testament law and things about how he's ready to strike down the words of Moses and the temple and a riot ensues because they so firmly believe that they should disagree with him. They drag him out of the temple. They are about to harm him in some way, probably to try to stone him. And uh, he is rescued by some Roman soldiers who gather around him to protect him. And Saul uh, asks the Roman soldiers for permission to speak to the riotous crowd. And so he waves his arms. He begins to speak to them in their native language, the Aramaic tongue, equivalent, roughly a, a variation of Hebrew. And they hear that he is speaking in their native tongue. They all quiet down. They begin to listen to him. And then we have the account of Paul's conversion, this time in the book of Luke, as a first-person testimony. He writes it as though it is coming out of the, word, the mouth of, of Saul. And as you, we read in Acts chapter 22, the first five verses, he tells about his former life as a persecutor of Christians. In verses 6 through 13, he tells the story of his Damascus Road experience, much like we read in Acts chapter 9. And then we pick up the story in verse 14 because there we see how his conversion experience is once again linked to his calling. In verse 14, we have Ananias speaking, and Ananias says, the God of our fathers has appointed you, Saul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, that would be Jesus, and to hear the sound of his voice, for you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. So in this account of the story, as we the story unfolds, Ananias says, Saul, you have been privileged. You have seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. You have hear, heard his voice and you are called now to share his word, what you have seen and heard as a witness. The conversion experience of Paul is linked once again to his experience of a calling to witness. As we go down to the third account of uh, Paul's conversion experience, we are in Acts chapter 26. And what has happened in the previous few chapters, in 22, remember, Paul was in the temple, he was dragged out of the prison, out of the temple to be stoned. Roman soldiers gathered around him. Well, he is arrested primarily for his own protection because the crowd's about to kill him. He is arrested for his own protection. By the time we get to chapter six, he has been languishing in a Roman prison in Caesarea for two years. There is a governor uh, named Felix who, um, for two years has neither charged him with a crime nor released him. So this is first century justice, <laughs> okay? He's not charged with a crime, but he's not being released. He's in prison for two years. Felix, the governor, is then replaced by Festus, the governor. 
And Festus wants to figure out what to do with Saul or Paul. And so he confers with the king, King Agrippa, and he arranges for a hearing with uh, himself, Festus, Agrippa, and Paul. And so chapter 26 is uh, uh, Saul's defense before King Agrippa. Um, As we look at this third account, there are a bunch of, in chapter 26, verses 1 through 12 are just a lot of preliminaries setting up the scene. In verse uh, uh, 12 through 15, again, Paul tells his Damascus Road experience pretty much the same details as we've learned before. But in chapter 6, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 16, so we're in Acts 26, 16, some added detail is given to uh, that has not been previously recorded in uh, Saul's conversion experience. Uh, we know that Saul, that God spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus. Here in this account, we're told more specifically what God said to Saul while he was knocked to the ground and blinded. So we read in verse 16 that God says to him, get up and stand on your feet. Remember, he's been knocked down. Get up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what I've revealed to you. I will rescue you from the people, from the Gentiles. I now send you to them, to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified. So again, we see this pattern developing. The story of Saul's conversion intermeshed with the story of his calling, they're, they're just inseparable. You can't tell one, they, the, the scriptures can't tell one story without telling the other. The two are combined. The last of the four accounts we find in one of Paul's letters, in the letter of Galatians. And uh, as we look at uh, Galatians, Uh, we see that Paul does not actually repeat his conversion story so much as he says to the Galatians, you all know me, you know my story, you know my history of being a persecutor of Christians, you know my story of my uh, um, uh, uh, conversion experience. Then he goes on to say in Galatians 1, uh, and we'll start reading at verse 13, I guess. Uh, we read in Galatians 1:13. he says, you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism, persecuted God's church to an extreme degree. I tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people. I was zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But, verse 15, But when God, who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. When was that? When he was on the road to Damascus. When he did that, he did that so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. And I did so immediately, basically without consulting others. Again, 
The conversion experience is briefly mentioned, but it is linked with his calling to be a witness for Christ and to be the minister to the Gentiles. All four accounts of his conversion link his conversion to his calling. Let's talk about our own testimony today. Does your testimony concerning what Christ has done for you, does your testimony in any way include something about your calling to be on mission for Jesus Christ? Uh, You see, obviously, Paul was saved to be a witness to all. Are we not also? You see, we too are saved to be witnesses. We are commanded by the Lord to be witnesses for him. Of course, his great commission tells us that, that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all things that the Lord has commanded us. Uh, We know Acts chapter 1, verse 8 which tells us that we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Wherever we go, we are to be witnesses. Paul's testimony included not only what was my life like before I became a Christian? I was a persecutor of the church. What were the circumstances involving me coming to know the Lord? Well, I was on the road to Damascus. What has happened in your life since? I have experienced a calling to share my faith with others, and I've been doing it ever since. In fact, in Acts 26, as he's giving witness to Governor Festus and King Agrippa, he is speaking directly to them, and Agrippa at one point says, Paul, would you think that you could convert me to Christianity so quickly? And Paul says, whether quickly or not, it would be my desire that everybody be like me, a follower of Jesus Christ, including you, Agrippa. His life was changed because he had a sense of calling. And I want to share with you, I think it's important for each of us to have our own personal testimony. Testimony about what was our life before knowing Jesus? What were the circumstances that led up to me following Jesus? What has my life been since I accepted Jesus? But there's an element that is often missing in a testimony such as that. Because sometimes the testimony seems an end in itself. The testimony is, well, here's my story. This is what's happened. But it's not just your story. It's a story about, it's God's story. It's a story about this amazing, wondrous, powerful, awesome magnificent God who loves us and the extent to which he goes to bring us into his family. It's God's story, not just my story. It's a story that says, look at what Jesus has done for me. And I want you to know 
that He will do the same for you. For those of you who have known me for quite a while, you've probably heard my testimony several times. There's probably enough folks in this this service that have never heard my testimony. Before I became a Christian, I grew up in a Christian home. I was seven years old when I accepted Jesus as my Savior. My parents were great Christian folks. They loved the Lord. They served Him. They were in church every Sunday. I was in church nine months before I was born. Uh, they, They served in most every way conceivable in the church. Uh, Mom at one time was the custodian, secretary, choir director, dad, the Sunday school director. They served on any committee that they needed to serve. He was a deacon, a Sunday school teacher. I mean, just actively involved in the church. They loved the Lord, did church visitation. Many of you who have known me for a while, you've knew, you even knew my parents because they've been in this church many times. I remember at age seven, we were driving home from some event. I don't remember what event it was. We were riding in my dad's 1950 Hudson. That was a wonderful car. <laughs> uh, for those of you, a Hudson was a poor man's race car in those days. If you've seen the movie Cars, one of the chief characters in Cars is a 1955 blue Hudson. The, the Hudson looked like an upside down bathtub, but it would just fly. It would just fly. It's a wonderful car. We are in that car, and the subject of Jesus comes up. I'm not sure exactly how, but I share with my family that I want to accept Jesus as my Savior. That next morning, Dad took me into the pastor's office during the Sunday school hour. We met with Pastor Fulbright, and Pastor Fulbright was an imposing man. He had been a football star in high high school and college. He was huge. I think he was like 6'7", well in excess of 300 pounds, intimidating guy. And... You know, I, I, he talked with me. We prayed together. Uh, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. As a child, and perhaps in a childish, if not childlike way, um, the extent of my theology at that point might have been the simple song, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. As time went on, I matured as a child and as a young adult, and my faith needed to mature. By 17, I recommitted my life to the Lord. Um, and within a period of a year or so, felt a calling to pastoral ministry and gave my life to pastoral ministry, went on to college seminary and became a pastor and have served in three churches. What's it been like since I accepted Jesus? When we look at our lives, once we have accepted Jesus, it takes on a brand new life. It is a new life. 
It's a life in which we understand that there, there is this amazing, wondrous God. Uh, someone in the first service, I think Buddy Landrum, mentioned something about the James Webb telescope that has been able to see into the far reaches of the universe. There is this amazing, wondrous God who created it all, whose, whose step spans the universe. And He is so amazingly powerful. He is beyond our description. His creation is beyond our imaginings, much less who the the Creator Himself. And this God who is perfect, sinless, that has existed from all eternity, this God has provided a means for a sinful me to live in fellowship with Him forever. He doesn't just want me to go to heaven one day. He wants to be with me in heaven one day. He wants to spend time with me in heaven one day. This God loves, and I know I'm six foot three and more pounds than I should, but this amazing God still loves little old me. It's amazing. And we think of the difference it makes and the hope that we have, the, the peace that we have in knowing that in a messed up world, God is with us. As I've gotten older, One of the things I've learned as I look out at the world today, and I see the mess that our world is in. I see uh, war in Ukraine. That's not the only war in our world going on. There's probably 30 different countries in our world that are at war or have some revolution going on. We just don't hear about all of them in the news. We think about people starving to death in Somalia the poverty of Haiti that many of you have seen firsthand. When we think of, you know, tyrants who want to impose their will on other nations, when we think of our own nation that is so messed up, where people are yelling and screaming at one another over politics, and we live in a nation where evil is said to be good, or somehow abortion is a good thing, or that homosexuality is something that God approves of. When we look at this messed up world, since I've become a Christian, I have begun to believe and and understand even more genuinely than I did at age 17 or 18, that there is a longing for a day when there's a new heaven and a new earth, where there is no more war and lying and stealing and cheating and, and conflict and, and poverty and pain and suffering, that there is a day coming. And I'm not sure I could say it at age 20, as, it, as genuinely as I can say it today, come Lord Jesus. 
Come, Lord Jesus. Because you are the only answer to our world's problems. And so this morning, I just want you to understand that life is so much better when you've placed your trust in Jesus. You, you, you now realize that you're something, you're in something far bigger than yourself. That there, there is this amazing God who loves little old us. That he has provided a way for us sinners to be in fellowship with the sinless God and to spend eternity in fellowship with him. And in this life, it makes so much difference. Did a funeral yesterday. And uh, there is such a huge difference between the funeral of a believing of a believer and a believing family and the funeral of an unbeliever and an unbelieving family. The wailing and the grief of one is contrasted to the, the joyous knowledge that our loved one has attained what they have lived their lifetime to attain, the heavenly home with Jesus. Pastor Matt has um, concluded most services recently with a statement, and he talks about you were sent into the midst of darkness to light it up. And Paul understood that. His conversion experience and his calling to light up the world with the gospel were interconnected. They, they could not be separated. They were one in the same. And I want you to understand today that it is simply not biblical to have a conversion experience without a sense that God has called you to share that conversion experience with others, to, be, to share the light of the world with others. And so my challenge for you today is simply this. Go into the midst of a very dark world and recognize it is your calling to help light it up by reflecting the light of Jesus into this very dark world. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place today, for the opportunity to share a word from Scripture. And Father, I pray that each one here can say, oh, what a difference Jesus has made in my life. And as we think about our testimony, what our life was like before being a Christian, what happened to lead us to become a Christian, how our life has changed since we become Christians. Help us, Father, to realize that being the light of the world in part means that we share with others what Jesus has done for me. He will do for you. Father, if there are folks in this room who have not accepted Jesus yet as their Savior and as their Lord, I pray that they will not let this day go by without talking with me or one of the deacons. 
that we might talk with you, pray for you, help you to come to discover this Jesus for yourselves who will make your life completely new and for the good. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Remember that you are sent into the midst of darkness. Pursue Jesus and light it up. Have a great week. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.